0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 123rd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is increasing prosperity for you and the nation. I'm joined by Roger Blackwell, who, along with Roger Bailey, is the co-author of Objective Prosperity, How Behavioral Economics Can Improve Outcomes for You, Your Business, and Your Nation. The publisher is Roshine Publishing. Roger Blackwell is the author of 40 previous books and a former professor at the Ohio State University, where he served in the business school as well as teaching courses for the medical school and as a member of the Black Studies faculty. In addition, Roger has taught and done research in 39 countries and for inmates at the Federal Corrections Institute in Morgantown, West Virginia. Welcome to the show, Roger.
0: Well, thank you. I'm glad to be
1: here. Uh, It's my distinct pleasure uh, to reconnect with Roger, who, by the way, for listeners, uh, was a prominent person to endorse my first book, Body of Truth, back in the day. So let's move to your book, Roger. Uh, What's it about? It's about how to be
0: prosperous, very simply, but it's what behavioral economics does to help prosperity for individuals or for businesses or for the nation. And that's why we call behavioral economics uh, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. And the old, of course, is traditional economics that have been around for a long time. But we don't throw those away. We add to them the psychology and sociology, and that's where the something new comes from. And it's something borrowed heavily from the Austrians, Schumpeter and von Mies, and Something blue. You know, a lot of people think capitalism is all red. Well, it isn't. The capitalism that survives will be something blue in it as well. So that's where we get the feeling that it is um, behavioral economics as a kind of a distinct, but not totally different view than traditional economics.
1: Sure. And, and one of the, the, the sayings about behavioral economics is that classical economics kind of thought of us as decision makers along the the, the uh, mark of Star Trek and Mr. Spock. And we're a little more like Homer Simpson from The Simpsons and that there's a very human element to how we make decisions and how we behave. And for that reason, I've always found uh, behavioral economics very Liberating and uh, down to earth and realistic. You mentioned an author uh, in the book, and you mentioned a lot of authors. It's obviously you're extremely well read as well as so prolific. Uh, a writer I hadn't actually heard of before, George Katona. I'm probably not saying the name right, but uh, I'm, I'm intrigued uh, how he got into this realm and how that might inform some of your own insights at times.
0: Yes, George Katona is a fascinating guy. I never met him personally, but uh, he was a Gestalt psychologist who ended up in the U.S. uh, and wrote during World War II, actually, The Psychology of Economics. And he was a psychologist, not an economist, but people have probably heard of the Consumer Confidence Index, which is (laughs) what he founded at at, uh, the University of Michigan. Or since I live in Columbus, Ohio, we sometimes call that the University Up North C- Consumer Confidence Index. and Sure. <laughs> and uh, he was uh, really the father of consumer behavior. And we wrote the first textbook on that. Uh, not the first, but one of the pioneering textbooks called Consumer Behavior. And he was very influential on how we developed that first textbook. But uh he it really
1: can be considered the
0: father of behavioral economics as well.
1: Good. I just I just was curious. I you know I, I knew about Kahneman and he came from a psychology background, but uh you know George's writings was one of the many things I learned in this book. Uh so fascinating stuff. in, um, in
0: fact uh Dan we we called um uh, Katona the father giving rise to the birth of behavioral economics and the rebirth of it was Kahneman, who just a few years ago won the Nobel Prize, and and quite a few other Nobel Prizes have gone to behavioral economists lately.
1: Yeah, no, I've always considered that a really interesting and important contribution to what's going on in the field. so you mentioned in the book, uh, business leaders who start with, from nothing, and you know, for instance, uh, speaking of Walmart, you know, Walton's rise and the fact that he started the company, we, you know, when he was what forty-four years old, is is really quite a remarkable story. Um, so you talk about leaders who come from nothing, and that they're very much informed by certain values, certain uh, characteristics. Uh, what have you found from your, your research as to some of the attributes of a uh, person who achieves prosperity?
0: Well, 90% of, according to Forbes magazine, 90% of all the current new billionaires come from people who started with nothing or nearly nothing. Um, so that's an interesting number. Because a lot of people think that you inherit wealth is the way you get wealth. And that's about 10 percent. The other 90 percent get it the way Sam Walton did and uh, Steve Jobs. And uh, of course, I think it's interesting that uh, the wealthiest person in our nation today is an African-American immigrant to this country. And the second wealthiest is a uh, son of a, a Cubano who came as a refugee from Cuba with no English skills. He learned that in the refugee camp. And uh, both of those, those are the wealthiest people in the nation today.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's remarkable. I would have one caveat. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that Bill Gates came from nothing and that his father was a prominent lawyer in Seattle, but uh, right. the other examples you just cited are very strong indeed.
0: But Bill Gates, I mean, he was just lucky because he was a college dropout, you know, I'm, I'm joking, of course. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But that is an interesting point that uh, what separates the prosperous from the non prosperous is often what they inherit in values from their parents rather than wealth. Gates did uh, have a father who was a, a prominent lawyer, as you say, and had a lot of advantages for him and a mother who got him into a tech school in high school where he learned to code. And uh, of course, one of the other wealthy people came along later, Steve Jobs, who was an adopted uh, son, started uh, Apple in a garage. And uh, Bill Gates and, and Steve Jobs had kind of a running feud from time to time. And Bill Gates was, is quoted as saying, and he, it, speaking of Steve Jobs, he said he doesn't even know how to code, uh, which Bill Gates learned in high school, actually.
1: Yeah, no, I, I've read with interest the story about Bill Gates, how he would sneak out of the family house and get over to the University of Washington, Seattle and code through the night. And then his mom couldn't figure out why it was so hard to rouse him out of bed in the morning. But, you know, he'd only hit the sack a couple hours earlier. So, um, you know, he certainly because, you know, let's go on to, you know, you mentioned values and I think that's hugely important. But you also mentioned work ethic, delayed gratification, uh, frugality, spiritual life. I mean, there's many factors there. And I want to give you a chance to speak to any or all of those as you'd like to.
0: Right. And it's not a single value, although the interesting thing, sometimes I've said, you know, it's motivation, it's discipline, it's delayed gratification, it's frugality, and, and these values. And we try to give examples of each of these in the book. And we give those examples by people like A.G. Gaston and David Stewart and um <clears throat> people who have succeeded sometimes without much family background um, and and certainly with no wealth. Um, But the reality is, some people say, well, can you boil it down? If you go to the KIPP schools, charter schools, which have an amazing record of taking people from dysfunctional backgrounds, poor, uh, often Black or Hispanic, and 75 or 85% of them graduate from college if they go to the KIPP schools. And every classroom, I'm told, has a sign in it or multiple signs that say two things. Work hard, be kind. Uh, huh. I, like I, think, that. I think they say be nice, but this is the same thing. Um, one of the persons that I happened to work with quite a bit was Dave Thomas, who started a, a, a little restaurant chain that he named after his daughter, Wendy. Dave only went to the 10th grade, and uh, I uh, did some work for him early on at Wendy's. And so he was always very good to come to uh, my class and lecture, as some noted authors have done, too, uh, like Dan Hill.
1: Um, (laughs) You're very kind.
0: But uh, one time he was there with his executive vice president, and they had polished up the values of Wendy's and nice statements and everything and had him on cards to give this talk to my class, which had 750 students in it. And Dave dropped the cards walking onto the stage. And some of the students asked him about his values. And he said, well, I don't, I don't have my cards here. And Charlie, his uh, executive vice president, uh, might have to answer this more, but I'd just tell you, it's just be nice. And that really is the key, and we give that example in the book. Uh, just be nice was the reason that Dave Thomas became extremely wealthy, even though he only went to the tenth grade. And uh, one time he asked me to come over to his house, and and his daughter had just graduated from a university in Florida, and. He, I hadn't met her at that point. And he said, this is my daughter, Wendy. She just graduated from college, but she don't know nothing. <laughs> and, and, and then he asked me to mentor her for a year, which I did. And uh, y- you don't have to have wealth. You don't have to have good parents um, that, you know, actually Dave Thomas never knew his birth parents. He was adopted at birth by somebody and his adopted father couldn't hold a job. And, but somehow Actually, it was his, his adopted grandmother that taught him the values that made the success at Wendy's. Now, they have formal values. Quality is our recipe and things like that, which their website talks about. But uh, the way Dave Thomas explained it is just just be nice. And that is kind of what Deidre McCloskey talks about in her books. You know, she's an economic historian, but she also holds a professorship in literature and uh, she calls it this way. She talks about success is humanomics. Um, now, we didn't use that in the title of our book. We actually thought about using the title Prospernomics as our book. But we thought that was maybe too, um, too uh, blasé for a book serious about behavioral economics.
1: Sure. Well, there, there's several tangents that I want to follow. One is I'll just quickly mention that uh, I certainly noticed the, the word humanomics and made a note to uh, track down some of her writings, which was another uh, godsend from, from your book. Um, I was going to say just in passing, Dave Thomas, I thought, was certainly an instance where a CEO on camera in his own commercials for the company was a real boon because he did come across so wonderfully as a, as a human being. I can't say that I'm convinced that all CEOs benefit from being on camera, but Dave absolutely. And then you mentioned something that I think is also important because it's it's uh, it fits with other things I've read and experienced in life, and it's in your book, the the role of mentors. And I I raise it in part because I think you know you've you've served on the faculty at uh, you know for Black Studies at Ohio State at the Ohio State University. Um, and, of course, you know, from some of my other readings and experiences, I know that uh, bl- uh, black leaders, especially those eager to climb through the ranks, uh, sometimes can feel themselves a bit cut off from the opportunity for, for mentors in larger organizations. And I, I wonder what um, well, I think you see the, as a prescription there or a solution.
0: I, I, you know, I have 10 rules that I have adopted in my life. And the first rule is treat everybody you meet with respect and kindness. My second rule is if somebody treats you with lack of respect and kindness, go back and reread rule number one. <laughs> sure. and, and that's really the secret. And it was kind of interesting at Ohio State. Uh, I had helped a number of the black students because many of them were sons and daughters of friends of mine to get black studies courses put into the university. This was in 1970 when kent state was having riots and ohio state was closed down for uh, several weeks and i helped these students get a uh, a course accepted for the curriculum the fall we hired a black studies professor except in august he didn't take the position he went to the university of washington as the black studies director and so I had the provost called me up and said, Roger, you talk talked to these students. We kept our commitment, but we can't teach the course in, in uh, black studies this fall. So I got all these students together and I said, you know, the university kept its commitment, but the teacher backed out. They looked at me and said, well, why don't you teach it? And, and I waved my white hands in the air and said, well, do, do you see a problem? And you know what all those black students said? No. You see, that's the antidote to racism. If, if they hadn't trusted me or known me or considered me a mentor, they would have said, ain't no way, no Charlie's gonna teach black studies. And that's the, that's the antidote to racism, whether it's white and black and black and white. And uh, I've taught a lot in Africa 30 years in a row. And I really don't believe in racism. I believe in colorism. <laughs> And, uh, you know, South Africa has four distinct classes or categories of race. Uh, One of them is black, one of them is colored, one of them is Asian, and one of them is white. Now, if you're from Japan, which one would you be? And the answer is white. If you are a descendant of some of the original uh, tribes who were brown, not black, and often intermarried with uh, Portuguese and, and Dutch People, uh, you're called colored. Um, Well, that's colorism, not racism, because there's really only one race, and that's the human race. And and I was fortunate enough to be put into situations where I taught classes that were all black students and taught the history of people like A.G. Gaston, who I consider one of the great profiles, and how to rise from the grandson of an enslaved individual. Uh, didn't know his father really, and his mother was an important influence in his life. And he, when he died, he had an estate, and this is many years ago, of 130 to $140 million, and he had already given away a lot of it to the Tuskegee Institute and other places. And he overcame so many problems of, you know, 10th grade was as far as he went, um, <clears throat> lack of a father in the home. Um, you can't live in... Much more of a segregated place than Demopolis or Birmingham, where he went. And yet, uh, and we relate his story in, in this new book, Objective Prosperity. That's how you overcome racism. That's how you overcome inequality. That's how you overcome many, many problems. And you can apply that to individuals or to nations. And, you know, in the first chapter, I talk about drop the dogma. I don't care whether you're democratic or Republican, I don't care whether you're blue or red, drop the dogma and deep, dig deep into the data. And that's what behavioral economics, it's reality economics. It's what really works, not what people would like for it to work. Families have a lot going on.
1: No, no, and I, I'm very much endorsing that uh, that approach. I, I believe me, I, I you know, behavior is what what matters, and that's how you can get to changes. Um, there is an area. Speaking of delving into the data, um, there's there's certainly a, a strong passage that takes on Thomas Piketty and uh, his writings on inequality and, and wealth. Um, so, your argument is that income inequality is is significantly lower than fifty years ago or is lower at least. I don't want to put any words in your mouth. Um I would I, say at the I same time, it is
0: lower. I've just we say okay many people think it is getting much more than it used to be. And we present the data and really we take the Austin Sprinter data and other data because PKT is really wrong when he has he he recommends as the solution transfer payments but then doesn't count them into what the lower-income people get, if you adjust for that, uh, inequality is not dramatically higher uh, or lower. And we probably the most uh, chapter that raises the most eyebrows or curiosity is we, one we call the uh, the, in, the iconic uh, ironic inequality paradox. And what the data show is. The more inequality, I'll put it the other way, the more prosperity you get, the more inequality you get. You know, a lot of people say, well, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poor. That's only half true. The rich are getting richer. That is true. But the poor are getting richer also, just not as fast. That makes a gap. But the poor get richer because of the rich, because the economy is not a zero-sum economy. And that that's the first... Question we ask in the book is the economy zero sum? If you make, if other people make more money, does that mean you make less money? No, it's just the opposite. The more money other people make, the more opportunity you have to make more money yourself if you're in the lower income. And that's, um, I, I think that I don't want, I don't like to call it the most controversial chapter because I think if anybody read it, they'd say mm, that's right. But it's different than what Piketty talks about. And there is a book that just came out well, two or three weeks ago called The Myth of American Inequality. Um, but the data show that what's happening is the middle class is shrinking, but twice as many are moving up as they're moving down.
1: And um, we try to show
0: people how to be one of those. Move up. Move
1: up. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I understand all that. I, I mean, I did look up because I, I trust them a lot and they try to get me out of a hopefully a, a left, right, blue, red dichotomy. Um, I've always r- trusted the Pew Research Center's findings and, um, you know, they, they would they would argue based on their data. I'm looking at an article I have here at my desk that there there is a wealth gap and it, it is growing. They in fact would argue that it doubled. Between the richest and poorest families from 1989 to 2016. But I, I understand your point about growing the pie and, yeah, um, and you know, want to think the that, chance to lift all boats.
0: One of the things we like to point out is wealth and income are very different things. You don't, get your, you don't get high income because of your wealth. Some people do, about 10%. But what happens is you get your income, high income today, because of your meritocracy. Uh, whether your name is Pat Mahonis or Tom Brady, or uh, lots of musical stars, and others. Sure. But what you whether you get more wealth or not depends on whether what you do with that income. And you 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 want people to accumulate high income when they're younger, in order to have more income when they're older. But that only happens if they know how to accumulate transfer income into wealth. And that's probably one of the biggest. Problems I've seen in very low-income families, whether white or black, but sometimes more among blacks that no one's there to mentor them to show how to do that, and then they dissipate their income and don't accumulate the wealth.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that is a, a serious issue because yes, the income might come, but the the <laughs> the wealth will not be sustainable. Um, yeah, and, and
0: it's it's both white and black. I, I know somebody who's. Uh, sold his business for two or three million and his children are blowing out the motors of cars that cost over a million dollars. And, you know, one of the problems with accumulating a lot of wealth is we find out that the ability to grow the wealth is not as fast as the ability of children and grandchildren to spend it.
1: True. Yes. Well, you mentioned in the book that, uh, was it 90% of the cases wealthy families exhaust their estates within three generations? Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So let's go to a couple other things because you really, one of the things that's very courageous of the book is you really take a hard look at uh, a lot of things out there and you want to go back to the data to say, how can we find a solution? So I was really intrigued. For instance, we got into questions of uh, college tuition and debt forgiveness I thought you had a very interesting approach. The debt forgiveness might be tied to serving in low-paying jobs in rural and urban areas uh, with high concentrations of poverty. And you also mentioned the book, Vis-a-Vis, the same kind of discussion that was about debt forgiveness. This was on immigration, that settling people with skills in those 80 percent of our counties in the country – that have declining populations uh, might be an approach. So you have a number of things here that are really looking at issues the country is facing and how we're going to form policy. Before we run out of time here, I want to give you a chance to maybe touch on a couple of things that are of particular interest to you. Well, we do. We, we talk
0: about, you know, probably the most fundamental psychological principle validated by hundreds, probably thousands of experiments over time. I was part of a research group that, looked at all the psychological journals for 60 years in the U.S., and looked at the ones that were findings were replicated versus ones that were reversed. And the most fundamental principle is behavior that is rewarded is behavior that is repeated. If you want people to accumulate (laughs) debt and then learn that that's okay, reward them for it. And if you... Don't want that. You do something differently. And those are some of the suggestions we put of doing things differently. We also point out that both of the authors, my author is Dr. Roger Bailey, who's brilliant. See, that's one of my theories. If you want to write a good book, find somebody (laughs) younger and smarter than you, which I did with Dr. Bailey. And both of us paid for our own education. The only people who have to create debt are the people who don't plan well. And, And I sometimes... I'm doing a seminar. Explain, people say, What do you mean by that? I say, Well, take AP courses in high school, uh, maybe probably take an extra course each or most semesters, and most schools don't charge for that. And don't uh, be very careful about changing majors. If you do that, anyone at most universities, I'm not saying all, can go through in three years instead of four years. Well, that's a big reduction right there. Uh, Both my co author and I paid for our own education. We had high quality, top, but we planned that and we worked. And uh, one of the examples that I, I really think people would find interesting in the book is Dr. Christine Johnson. She's the relatively new president of the Ohio State University. And we talk about her scarlet and gray. Anybody who comes to Ohio State to get an undergraduate degree can now graduate without debt. Okay, well, a lot of people don't know how to do that. And so that's We give that example. It's called the Scarlet and Gray Program, but it requires two things, several things, but two things that are important. One is working, and and, and you're going to be a much better employable person when you graduate with work experience than somebody with a four-point who didn't work in college. And second, she requires all students to take a course in financial literacy, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> You're not, somehow you shouldn't be able to graduate from high school without a course in financial literacy, although mandates like that are usually not too valuable. But um, the people who rack up a lot of debt just didn't plan well.
1: Yeah, no, I've always wished that there was a course in financial literacy and then for the benefit of people's lives, uh, that there would also be a course probably, frankly, on EQ, because you mentioned in the book that 85% of your career success financially is going to be probably dependent on your skills with human interaction and ability to lead others. Um, So, yes, if both of those kinds of literacy would be uh, promoted and insured, we'd probably all be much better off. And a lot of people don't know how to start their own business and become... Very affluent.
0: Uh, the book I wrote before this book, Objective Prosperity, was called Saving America, how garage entrepreneurs grow small uh, firms into large fortunes. And I have a chapter on Jeff Bezos. I have a chapter on uh, Dave Thomas. I have a chapter on Steve Jobs and people like that, starting in garage. And what are the principles that caused them to it? And I had the privilege of teaching a lot of... St- people uh, in prisons about how, in fact, next week I'm lecturing um, in a prison here in Ohio, and I would teach them how to get a job when they get out. And they would say, "Uh, Blackwell, nobody's going to give me a job. I've got a felony conviction. And I'd say, well, you're probably right. So why don't you give yourself a job? And they say, well, what do you mean by that? I say, start your own business. It could be lawn mowing. It could be painting. It could be HVAC. It could be all kinds of things. And they said, well, I don't know how to do that. That's why I wrote the Saving America book, is to show people how to do that. And I have seen people who came out of prison um, and difficult, difficult to get a job, but who now have become quite a um, um One of the young men was named Nalone. And uh, he actually made me god uh, godfather to his daughter. And he told me, he said, well, you know, I have left drug deals with several dead people on the floor. But if I hadn't have, I'd have been the dead one on the floor. Well, he didn't know. When I first started tutoring him, he didn't even know how to read. He didn't know how to uh, alphabet. And if you can imagine this young, muscular black guy and an old white ex-professor singing A, B, C, D, E. He has a very successful job now in Arizona. That's great. And that's, to me one of the, the, the primary purpose of the book is to show people how to be prosperous. And one of the interesting chapters is why are some nations prosperous and others poor? And I don't know whether we have time to talk about that or not, but a lot of people will say something like natural resources. Well, if that were true, Russia would be the richest country in the world. Uh, and Singapore wouldn't have gone from one of the poorest countries in the world to richer than the U.S., uh, because they change their values, and it, it all boils down to values: why people, firms, and nations are poor or prosperous.
1: Yeah, no, I had I noted, for instance, that you also had, uh, taught extensively in Holland in the Netherlands, which I've done a lot of work in, and I, I really uh, admire it and. Uh, Respects the, the the Dutch, so um, yeah. You no, know, I think it's all, they didn't all even have any land; stuff. they
0: had to make their own land.
1: <laughs> That's true. So we do need to to wrap it up, but I want to thank you, Roger, so much for being my guest. This has been episode 123, increasing prosperity for you and the nation. My guest, Roger Blackwell, he is the principal author of Objective Prosperity: How Behavioral Economics Can Improve Outcomes for You, Your Business, and Your Nation. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one from the classic writer Horace, who said, Adversity reveals genius. Prosperity conceals it. Until next time, take care and be well.